It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On Reds, your daily Cincinnati Reds podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. into your daily source for the Cincinnati Reds throughout the offseason. This is the Locked On Reds podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Carr. And here we go. What's going on, Reds fans? Welcome in to the Locked on Reds podcast. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. It's um, Friday, I think, something like that. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. I appreciate uh, everyone tuning in to the podcast on today's show. want to talk about some Locked on Reds line stuff with favorite memories that people have sent me. Also, we're going to get to the Palace of the Fans with Cam Miller looking back on our historic uh, stadium series that we've had. It's going to be the last installment of that. And real quick, I got a thought about an ESPN article in just a moment. But before we get to all of that, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on all the many podcasting platforms. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Carr with three Fs and follow the show at Locked On Reds. Also, check out the brand new Locked On Reds Facebook page. If you're more of a Facebook person than a Twitter person, just check out. It's at Locked On Reds on Facebook. And I uh, don't know why it took me so long to get that created. Anyway, let's jump in real quick. Before we jump into the Locked On Reds line stuff, the ESPN article that I'm talking about was written and distributed yesterday on the interwebs. And it was the biggest debate for all 30 teams. They look at a question that has been debated amongst fans for each Major League Baseball team. But you can't guess what they pick for the Reds. Yeah, I thought it was kind of lazy myself. Honestly, we've talked about it ad nauseum. We all know how we feel about Pete Rose getting into the Hall of Fame. Let's talk about something else. There's so many other questions that we can look at. I mean, the number one question that comes to mind is what would have happened if they weren't dumb and thought Frank Robinson was an old 30? What if they would have kept him? How, I mean, you know, it's hard to say that they would have been better, but would they? I mean, how much better would they have been? I mean, come on. It, some, some thoughts like that, some, some questions like that. And looking at other teams, they had some weird ones for other teams, like for the Yankees. Like if I was a Yankees fan, I would have been insulted by the debate on that one. They chose for the Yankees, is Derek Jeter overrated? Now we are, look, I'm a Reds fan. You're a Reds fan listening to this. Probably most of you aren't really too fond of the New York Yankees, so it's not as if we're qualified to answer that question. But amongst New York Yankees fans, are they really discussing if Derek Jeter is overrated? I mean, are we really discussing if Joey Votto is overrated or, you know, things like that? I know some people are, but I don't really talk to those people, so I'm not sure who's talking about that, and I don't know what Yankees fan is talking about, whether Derek Jeter is overrated or not, but I, I could think of a lot of different Reds questions I'd rather 
talk about over a nice cold beverage or something like that. And there were a couple of good suggestions on Twitter talking about uh, shout out to Jacob Rude on Twitter. He said that what if Matt Latos didn't absolutely bomb in game five of the 2012 NLDS? I mean, it's a fair question. There's a lot about 2012 and especially the 2012 playoffs that what if could really be applied. And I I feel like there's plenty more to think about than the age old question of should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? I think we pretty much understand where Reds fans sit on that debate at this point in time. So let's jump into some fun stuff. Let's look at some memories. My first one is a text message from Mike Hubbard on the Lockdown Reds line at 513-549-0159. He said he meant to call into the voicemail, but Mike says he was at the Clinchmas game, Chapman's first ever appearance, Homer Bailey's no-no, Todd Frazier's home run derby. And he's, he's like, each one had a mix of emotions. Jay Bruce walk-off almost brought me to tears. And the home run derby was about as close as what it would feel like to win a championship. Thoughts? Discuss tomorrow on the pod, maybe? And yeah, I got some thoughts. I was actually, I got the chance to be there at the home run derby as well. And I'm going to tell you what, that that was a moment. I had some pretty nice seats, not not to brag, behind home plate. Not, not Diamond Club, though. I'm not that nice. But scout seats and stuff. Paid a pretty penny for him, too. But that was a lot of fun. Just because it really felt like a night that Cincinnati was on display. And as far as a championship goes, I don't know about that, but I had a lot of fun. Like, I, I, it was packed shoulder to shoulder on the concourse. If you wanted to go get anything, I probably waited a good solid 45 minutes to an hour in line for Frybox, but hey, it's worth it. Or as C. Trent called it in the athletic uh, Vados Poutinery. But I got the chance to talk to like a multitude of fans from all over the place, talk to some Rangers fans, talk to some Astros fans, ironically, both from the state of Texas. There was also some Braves fans there, different things like that. And it was really kind of an eye-opener because I've been to opening day, you know, it's shoulder to shoulder with nothing but Reds fans. And that is its own special thing. But having so many different fans there and being like, wow, look at this ballpark, look Look at Great American. Look at the city. What a display that was. It was an absolute honor to be involved in that. And I could see where that would be another moment to really think of, too. It was up there for with Clinchmas for me as well. And, and the Chapman appearance. I remember, I think it was either his third or fourth appearance. And it was in a crazy long extra innings game when they played the Pirates and it started at like 7 o'clock and they went to 13 innings and we were some of the only schmucks that were still there. Actually got on the Jumbotron that day. That's the only time that's ever happened because, well, they ran out of people to put on the Jumbotron. That's the only way that your buddy Jeff's getting on the Jumbotron. But that was a lot of fun too. There's something about Chapman. Every time he came out of the bullpen, I wanted to stand up. And at that point in time, I was sitting in the $5 seats where you were much closer to the Ohio River than you were to home plate. And it was just so much fun. I was still standing, hanging on every single pitch, seeing how many pitches he could throw over 100 miles an hour. I miss a roll as Chapman. I don't know about you, but I do. But those are moments that we remember, and I appreciate you sharing that one, Mike, because as far as my lifetime as a fan, 
We've talked about this many times. They won the World Series in 1990. 1995 was pretty cool, but I was still kind of too young to really comprehend what was going on. So as far as my fan life is concerned, there's never really been too much winning success. So I'm thinking of different moments in the season and different things like that, and we're hoping that here soon we can get some winning success like some playoff stuff. And a shout-out to Risto Neely, our buddy down in Jacksonville. He sent me a very long dissertation about he got the chance. He was there in 1976, the NLCS, the Reds and Phillies in Game 3, and he really went into detail about this. And I'm, I'll tell you what, Risto, I really appreciate this. I, I'm not going to be able to read all of this here on the podcast, but I do implore you. Risto actually has a really great article, not about the 1976 NLCS, but about a conversation that he got to have with Jim O'Toole. And he wrote that at redscontentplus.com. Go check that out. Really good read if you haven't already done so. And I tell you, when it comes to memories, baseball is about nostalgia. It really is. I mean, that's one of the reasons that everyone is so up in arms when you look at these different plans that they have for this season. And look, this season was always going to be weird. Whether they just decided to start it in the middle and somehow they were able to pick up where they left off, you know, whatever day it is we finally get baseball back, that was going to be weird. And now that they're thinking about realigning the leagues for three 10-team divisions and all this other stuff, that's certainly going to be weird. There's going to be a lot of new stuff there. But at the same time, there's always that tradition that most baseball fans have in the back of their minds and that's why everyone is so hesitant I guess is the right word for that and last but not least we have our buddy Greg from Annapolis checking in with a voicemail so I've got that right here for you now hey Jeff uh, Greg from Annapolis just uh, giving you a call about my uh, great Reds memory it was 1975 game six and um, I um, was watching the game and somehow my dad fell asleep, and I guess my mom fell asleep upstairs. So I was as quiet as could be. I didn't make any noise, watched the game, saw, you know, the comeback, and then the Bernie Carbo home run, uh, Dwight Evans making the catch, and it got to be uh, when Fisk got up. And he hit that home run, and I burst into tears. I was eight years old. My dad shot out of his chair and was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, the Reds lost the game. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, is that it? They're going to come back tomorrow. And he went right back to sleep. So that's my uh, crazy Reds moment. And uh hope you're doing well and staying safe. And we'll talk to you soon. Greg, thank you so much for that memory. That's, it's funny that you bring that up because my dad – they played uh, they do it a lot they play the replay of game six of the world series from 1975 and obviously it's one of the best world series games ever and it goes to the favor of the red sox and my dad always when he sees me watching that on tv if i've got it on or if he sees like a commercial for it or something like that he's just like what are you watching that for? Why do you care about that? The Reds win the next game. Like, who cares? Yeah, Fisk. He gets his moment. The Red Sox get their moment. And the Reds win the World Series. 
That's plain and simple. That's how it works. Game seven, no one ever seems to replay that. But the Reds end up winning. And it is kind of funny that your parents act that way. I mean, that's the way my parents were. And, I mean, growing up Reds and Bengals fan, I've known nothing but heartbreak in the sports fan world. And yet I still keep coming back. I don't know why. But they know very well that I got kind of mad a lot at stuff like that. Many a time, my my mom was like, "All right, I'm gonna turn that TV off if you don't calm down." You know. I, <laughs> ugh. Anyway, thanks for that, Greg. And remember, guys, if you got a voicemail, always send it in five one three five four nine zero one five nine, and we'll put you on the podcast. Appreciate that voicemail there. Here coming up, we've got the Palace of the Fans, as Cam Miller describes it to me. Also got a fun uh, conversation about uh, the way that fans used to dress. At ball games. Let's jump in. All right. So for our final installment, we've talked about Riverfront. We've talked about Redland slash Crosley. Now we are way back. We are back to the early, early days of the Cincinnati Reds. We're looking at the palace of the fans. And to be honest with you, man, I don't even know where to start here. I mean, this this was a stadium. Uh, did they have outfield seating? Was it all bleachers? Like, tell me about the Palace of the Fans. Well, the Palace of the Fans was it was the first. I want to say it was the first all concrete structure for a ballpark. I don't think there was one before that. There may have been, um, but I want to say that it was the first all concrete. So they that was the first thing. It was so different than the wooden parks because, frankly, they got tired of ballparks burning <laughs> league park burned, oh, wow. um, and they had to re- redo the outfield. Um, they, uh, not just Cincinnati and other places too, where wooden frames. And, and of course with, you started to get more crowds and the weight of these crowds, it was tough to design something where it could hold it. And there's many times where, um, ballparks would crumble and fans would get hurt or even killed because they structurally just weren't sound. So, Palace of the Fans was built, like it says, for the fans. It was this beautiful, beautiful uh, ballpark where if you go to the Hall of Fame, you'll see a replica of it. And the facade of the theater is a, it looks like the Palace of the Fans. So it was designed to be something glorious in, in, in grandeur. It was, it was uh, they, they didn't have outfield seats till later, um, but they did have, you started to see uh, advertisements in the outfield, which obviously still continues today. We went through a period where that didn't happen, but um, in the 70s and the 60s, uh, into the 80s with Riverfront Stadium and things like that, you didn't see advertising on the wall. But Palace of the Fans had many, many advertisements, and that was kind of the start of that. Lee Park did it for a little bit, but Palace of the Fans started to have the advertisements. It was a big, big ballpark, of course, the same site as Crosley, um, where they were, were played since 1880. So, it was just, the, the, the name says it all. I mean, it was built as this majestic structure to kind of have, a, I wouldn't say a Roman-esque you know, yeah. uh, coliseum look. They kind of give it this place where you're coming in to, in, to, to watch entertainment. Um, and it's not just some kind of wooden structure where you go see a baseball game. It was more, look at the beautiful surrounding. So it was a little bit different than League Park or those before it. It's one thing I'm looking at the picture right now, and I encourage you if you're listening to the podcast right now, just look up pictures of Palace of the Fans. It yeah. looks like the Bugs Bunny episodes and stuff like that. Whenever you see them playing yeah. baseball somewhere, this looks right. like that stadium. It's so true, and it, it's 
they perp and it took a while. I don't know, remember the exact cost. I'm sure that you can find it online, the exact cost of what it was, but it was a, this was a, a bold step. I mean, it really was. And unfortunately, uh, there wasn't very many good teams that, that, that played in Palace fans, but I mean, and that we, goes back to saying something we said before about how, um, your stadium, you know, you have better memories and it's more memorable when you have great teams in it because that there's just something about, you know, seeing championship games. The Reds didn't have any great teams at the Palace of Fans, but it looked pretty, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> the the wild thing about it was it only lasted nine years. Like right, what, right. What, what was the biggest reason that they felt they dis, they just needed the change so quick? Well, and this this happened a lot back then. Stadiums, um, and I think it goes to um, they kind of like uniforms. If you look at uniforms back then, they changed all the time. Every other year, mm-hmm. they're changing the uniforms, changing the style. It was just there was something about a fresh start. Let's start do something new. It, it got tiresome quick, which is kind of strange because you think about the times and the costs. I mean, money wasn't something that was. Ballpark, you didn't, you weren't a baseball owner to make money. I mean, back then in those days, it wasn't like it is today. Mm-hmm. So, to the the fact that they would do, you know, the cost of these things were so outrageous, and they would change just like they would uniforms every other year. That's why when we had the 150th celebration, and you see all the different uniforms, you're like, wow, they only wore that two years, three years, the same stadiums. <laughs> it was like, well, let's do something different. That was fun. Next, what we what else we got? There was no real rhyme or reason. It was just, let's change it up. Let's do something different. It was thinking outside the box. I mean, can you imagine Great American being torn down for nine years, and then we're going to build another one? It would never happen in a million years. We would have already had two stadiums since Great American Ballpark was built. Isn't that crazy? That's a good perspective. That's a good way to think of it. Just how um, the the mindset of an owner uh, of of a team is much different now than it was Back then, you were just trying to think of ways to do different things because a new ballpark meant, oh, we're going to go to this new ballpark, and it would bring in more fans. Opening day was this big deal. And then you get get tired of looking at that. Let's let's do something different. And plus, also, the the economics of the time and, and, you know, how things were were playing out um, socially, culturally. I mean, mean, attitudes changed. The way things were designed changed. Kind of going back to Cross a little bit about that, we're talking about how they used to go – to exit the stadium, you'd go to the outfield. Oh. And the same with many of those parks. You would, the game was over, you'd go out, they open up the gate and next to the scoreboard in the outfield, and that's how you'd go. You'd walk around, and that's how you exit, right on the playing field. Can you imagine that today? Just open up the stadium, Great American, just open up the outfield, and everybody can just leave. <laughs> that would be crazy. And, oh my gosh. So basically, what you're saying is owners came up with the idea of free agency so they didn't have to build new stadiums every year you know and get what? people excited. That, that's a great point. That's a great point. You know what? That, you, you're starting to make sense now. I mean, there you go. This is, how, this is how things changed. You're, you're, it's an exclusive here on, on the podcast. You're hearing it. <laughs> I'm making sense. Don't tell my <laughs> wife. Uh, <laughs> when when um, we look at stadiums from back, obviously the facilities are so much more advanced now because there's so much more money into it. Did they have locker rooms or anything like that? Well, they, they did have a clubhouse, but uh, imagine – like if you go to a construction site and you see those trailers off the side where they, you know, house the uh, blueprints and the, the mm-hmm. coffee machine, that's what the clubhouse was. <laughs> it was basically <laughs> just that size of that. Now, 
some parks had them attached, some didn't. Um, and, and, and in fact, uh, they did. They did have uh, at Palace. They did have the part, uh, the, the locker room attached to it. But Crosley, you had to go behind, and you have to walk through the stands to get to the locker room at Crosley. So I mean, you would have to walk up the stairs, to the stands. It'd be like going up the red, you know, the seat there in the third base side at Great American, and then going into the locker room. That's how it used to be. So, but there was, uh, I want to say that. Oh, I know in Riverfront, obviously it changed because you had the multi-purpose for football and and baseball. But most of the parks from 1880 on, um, and if you go, they didn't have uh, the the big clubhouses. But if you think about how at Union Grounds and going back to 1869, you dressed and left your uniform on the streetcar or the horse and buggy you drove to the stadium. There was no place to change clothes. So. You went from that to League Park having a changing room, a facility where you could do it. And even at, in the early days of Redland uh, and Palace of the Fans, even in the early, early days, you would have to – there was a, a restaurant on the first base side, and the name – can't think of the name of the restaurant right now. But they would change there in the back room where the pool tables were, the billiards room. And they would – the Reds would change clothes there and then walk across the street to the ballpark. So – a little bit different. <laughs> Imagine going to the banks and the Joey Votto walks out of changing clothes there and then walking across to play the game at Great American. <laughs> wow. I I tell you, it's just a different game. And that's what I love so much when you look back at the history of baseball and you go back that far. It's just everything right. was so different. And, so and, different. And, and not necessarily stadium-specific, but – what was the feeling? I mean, you, you always look at old pictures and stuff like that. The fans in the stands, they're not dressed up in like uniforms or t-shirts or anything. They're dressed up in suits and they got like bowlers and top hats and all that stuff. What, what changed? Like where, where, where did that go away? We were talking about this recently. And I know I had a conversation with some of the guys at the hall of fame about this, about how it wasn't until the, if you look at pictures, obviously back then, if you look at the old black and white photos from 1890s into the you know 1910s, 20s, everybody looks pretty much the same. The hats change, but the suits are the same. And you got the bowler hats, you got the, you know, you, you, the fedoras as you go into the 40s. Mm-hmm. But it was, most of these guys are getting off work and they're going to the game or they're took off and they're, and they're going um, to the game and then they got to go to work afterwards or also, that's the way you dressed when you went anywhere. Sweatpants and T-shirt was not something that was invented. So you, you wore <laughs> your suit in the morning, and you took it off at night, and then you wore it again the next day, and you took it off at night, no matter where you're going, ballpark, uh, to the meat shop, to the baker, the butcher, or the candlestick maker, no matter where you were going, <laughs> you were wearing your fedora and your nice suit and your, your, your tie and your vest, and you were looking you know, dressed to the nine. But around, we started looking at photos um, and we were like, when did this happen? And you start to see in the 1950s, the early 50s, 50, 51, 52, if you look at some pictures of the stands, and I, I'm lucky enough to have some pretty high-res photos where I can zoom in. And I've zoomed in on a 52 shot at Crosley. And most of the guys are in their, you know, their top hats. But then you start to see kids in red shirts, mm-hmm. T-shirts that have reds on them. And you just... That's the first time I've ever seen was 52 was the first year that I saw a child. Now, and as you get going on into the late 50s, 60s, the, the, uh, the, the dress 
the public dress changes for men to go out. They wear their T-shirts with their cigarette pack rolled up in their sleeve, mm-hmm. and they, they look a little bit different. They look like James Dean just walked off a movie set. <laughs> but they, there was this attitude of more casual. And in the 70s, you still had, it was casual, but you didn't wear your, you know, your, your, your shirts. Kids would. You would see kids in there. But I don't know what year. It's a good question. When, when did they start? When did men and women start to dress in jerseys and, you know, logo, uh, logo shirts with, you know, your favorite team on? I, I would venture to it would probably be the 80s, the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. But most of the time you're seeing people, they're in the, the men are in the fedoras and the women are dressed in, in dresses and they look like they're going to church on a Sunday afternoon, but they're actually going to a baseball game. So, but if you look into, into those pictures, you can see the progression, but it was mostly kids that were wearing the logos in the fifties and sixties. And it wasn't until the eighties or so that you started to see everybody wearing you know, their jer- favorite Jersey. You didn't see too many, uh, uh, Frank Robinson jerseys in the stands in the, in the fifties, <laughs> unfortunately, which, you know, now, I mean, you go to a game and, it's hats and t-shirts and jeans. It's just a totally different look. But I, I t- I'm telling you, one day I'm going to have a uh, – We're gonna, when baseball starts up again, my man, we're going to have to go to a game. And you, me, we're going to get some guys and, and some gals, and we're going to go dressed like it's 1940. And we're celebrating the World Series Cincinnati Red Champions. And we're going to have fedoras and ties. And that's how we're going to go to the game. Man, I am in like Flynn. That sounds like an awesome <laughs> idea. Oh, man. Cam, I appreciate everything that you've done throughout this series, just talking about these old stadiums and stuff. Like, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun looking back. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. I love talking about Red's history, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, much to the chagrin of the people around me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it for us here on the Locked on Reds podcast for this week. If you missed any episodes, make sure you go back and check them out. I talked with Drew Cook yesterday. We had Stephen Offenbaker on earlier this week and just talking about our favorite moments in our you know fan lives as Reds fans and many more. Trevor Bauer talking about some center field evaluations, different things like that. You're not going to want to miss it. And the best way to not miss it is to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you're currently listening to. Hopefully, we'll start to get a little bit more of a clear picture when it comes to what baseball might look like when it returns this season as many a high-ranking reporter and very trustworthy baseball beat writer will tell you there will be baseball. They're just working on what the details are going to make it look like and all that good stuff. I'll keep an eye on that here for you. Until then, we'll talk to you on Monday. Make sure that you follow me on Twitter as well, at Jeff Cart with three Fs, and follow the show at Locked on Reds. Check out the Facebook page, Locked on Reds, plain and simple, and save the Locked on Reds line number into your phone at 513-549-0159. Thanks again for listening, guys and gals, and we'll talk to you on Monday. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.